If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 15, is where we're going to be today. Um, getting awfully close here to the end of Mark's gospel. We'll conclude it next weekend with a Good Friday message out of Mark 15 and then a good Easter Sunday message from Mark chapter 16. Um, and so we're looking forward to that. But this weekend or this morning, we are in Mark chapter 15. We'll read together verses 16 to 32. And so whether you have a paper copy of the scriptures or on your phone or device, some kind of device, I encourage you to follow along with us as we read together. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is God's word. You know, when I was in high school, my parents asked me the, what vehicle I wanted. It wasn't a big selection, right? Uh, whenever I came to driving age and I told them I wanted to restore an old vehicle, which is a bad mistake on my part. I had no idea how much work was going to be involved in that. Uh, because from the time that we purchased the 1950 Dodge, okay, 1950 Dodge pickup truck, and it was, we brought it home, dropped it off in our driveway, and it sat there for several years in various stages of restoration. Um, when I was finally in college, they sold it to someone else to finish it up. Um, so that was kind of how that story went. But the thing was full of rust. There was rust all over the body, all over the chassis, the frame. We had to strip it all the way down to the frame. Everything came off, and it sat there on, a, on the frame, sat there on blocks in our driveway. We had to sandblast off all of the rust and corrosion uh, down to the pitted metal that was left there. Uh, because that, that vehicle had sat out in a field for years, unmaintained, and it sat out in a field for years. Right, with people giving it no attention whatsoever. And over the course of that time, the exposure to the elements and the erosion of the paint, right? because if it sits out like that for that long, without anyone taking care of it, the paint begins to bake away, the bare metal is exposed, and rust begins to set in. Corrosion begins to creep in. And corrosion, if left unchecked on bare metal like that, will eventually disintegrate it, will destroy it. Right? I don't know if you've ever seen metal that's been corroded all the way down to just the fine powdery dust. 
it will just break to pieces like brittle in your hand. But corrosion has that impact. It has that effect on exposed metal, metal that has not been protected, it has not been painted, it has not been maintained. And listen, church, shame has the same effect on the human soul. The same effect on the human soul. Shame is corrosive. It will eat away at your life down to the very core. In the same way that moisture causes corrosion, shame will corrode your soul. It's a crippling experience or emotion. It paralyzes us. It debilitates us. All right? That's what shame does. It crushes. And it comes from many sources. Right? Shame may originate from things that were said to or done to you by someone else. Right? From your childhood, things that words that were spoken or works that were done to us in the past. Right? It may come from a cold, calculating, critical mother. Or it might come from a crushing physical father. Or it might come from the absence of love and affection from either one of your parents in your home. Men, many times from the absence of a strong, tough, yet tender and loving and compassionate father in your life. Right? So it can come from things that were said to you or done to you in the past. And at times it lays dormant. It can go away for a while and then be triggered again in your life whenever conversations about those individuals arise or you see them again. It can be, in other words, shame can originate. It can have its source in what was done to or said to you by someone else that ought not have been said and ought not have been done. But it can also have a source. It can also originate or come from the things that we said or things that we've done in our past. Foolish words, right? They didn't get trapped in the filter before they came out of the mouth. Right? Things that emanated in our heart. The things that we've thought. The things that we've felt felt, the attitudes that we've embraced or that we've had, foolish things that we did with or without being under the influence of inebriating substances, right? Things that we did with our bodies, things that we did with our money, ultimately can produce shame, ways that we've sinned against God or we've sinned against others can carry forward in our lives. And listen, if left undealt with, if left unchecked in your life, shame will fracture your soul. It will. It will break you to pieces. It will disorder your life and it will numb your experience of every other emotion. Because everything will be shaded by shame. You know, in our text this morning, we come to a place in Mark's Gospel where he begins to narrate the crucifixion account. He begins to tell us about not just that Jesus died, but how Jesus died. And Mark is not interested in graphically narrating all the physical brutality that Jesus endures. We saw that last week whenever he basically sums up all the torture that Jesus experienced with one word, flogged or scourged. We only know what that means from historical accounts of what took place under Roman scourging. So Mark doesn't narrate that for us, but he goes to great lengths, church. To great lengths, takes great pains to describe the psychological torture that Jesus would experience at the hands of his, uh, of his captors, at the hands of those who would put him to death. On the cross, Jesus is not only simply killed, but the manner in which he is killed, he faces the full force of being shamed, of being mocked, of being ridiculed, of being derided, of being humiliated. He dies in utter disgrace. 
that's the picture Mark paints for us. And as he paints this picture for us, I believe it shows us two things. One about ourselves and the other about Jesus. And what we learn from those helps us to deal with the crippling and corrosive effects of shame in our own lives. So let's take a look at what Mark teaches in this text. These two things, one about us, one about Jesus. The first one, it teaches us that all humanity, including you and I, would mock the claims of Jesus. We mock His claims. See, the human heart is wired in such a way that it not only rejects the absolute claims of Jesus, but listen, it also ridicules them. In fact, Mark is careful to show us just how widespread and deep the derision runs in the human heart. As the ridicule, mocking, and reviling that Jesus experiences on the cross, it comes from every segment and every corner and every strata of human society. Consider this, these four categories of people that are there mocking Jesus at the cross. You have the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers are mock Jesus as they essentially they put on a skit, right? A little parody, a little spoof. Okay? And they do so in a variety of ways. First of all, they take a purple cloak and they drape it upon Jesus' back. Purple was the most expensive and prestigious of all the dyes in the ancient world, and it symbolized royalty. Here's a man who's been beaten to the edge of his life and they drape him in a purple cloak. They place on his head a crown of thorns. Crowns in the ancient world were normally made of gold leaf and they signified, again, royalty or some kind of military might or valor or conquest. And yet Jesus' crown has no gold or leaves but is woven from the spiny stems of the Akinathus plant which was common to the Mediterranean region of Jesus' day. And they press it down onto his skull. They salute Jesus, as they would a military commander, with the words, Hail King of the Jews, which was similar to the salute for Caesar. Hail Caesar, victor and commander, as they would hail the emperor. And they move from psychological torture, shaming, mocking, ridiculing, and deriding him, to physically abusing him as they strike his head with a reed, which was likely a papyrus reed which would have been represented like a young piece of bamboo, which would have had some degree of flex, but also enough rigidity. So every time they would strike him on the head, it would draw blood. The soldiers proceed then to spit on him. They kneel as if in false homage, putting on a show. In a stage play, they cast lots for his clothing and then they crucify him between two common thieves. Jesus is ridiculed and mocked and shamed by the Roman soldiers, but also by the commoners on the street. Those who would pass by. Did you read it with me in verse 29? These passers-by, they shake their heads and they ridicule Jesus about His predictions regarding the destruction and the raising of the temple. They say, ha, this one who was going to tear down the temple and build it again in three days. They hurled insults. In fact, my, my translation says they derided Jesus in verse 29. In the Greek there, it literally means this, to blaspheme. They were hurling blasphemies at Jesus. And blasphemies in the Bible always describes evil speech against God. So the very thing, listen, that Jesus was accused of by the Sanhedrin 
is the very thing that these pastors buy or doing as God Himself, the second person of the triune God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is hanging upon the cross. They're deriding Him and ridiculing Him. Essentially, they're blaspheming Jesus as He hangs. Not only do they mock Jesus, but the Jewish leaders would as well. In verse 31, we're told, so the chief priest also with the scribes mocked him to one another. You can imagine them sitting around and joking with each other in very jovial manner with regards to the condition that Jesus now finds himself in. They said, he saved others and he can't do anything about his own condition. He gave sight to the blind. He, he cleansed the lepers. He brought people out of the tomb. Can't he bring himself down there off the cross? This is Israel's Messiah, God's anointed one, the king. Couldn't he do something to remedy his own situation? Couldn't he give us some kind of sign? And so the Jewish leaders would mock him. They would mock his perceived impotence, his powerlessness, his weakness, his inability to do anything to save himself or demonstrate the truthfulness of what he had claimed or who he had claimed to be. And then finally, Jesus is even mocked by the criminals who hung on their own crosses to his left and to his right. Mark is showing us that this utter disdain and scorn and humiliation that Jesus receives comes from every category and class of humanity. And in so doing, listen, it fulfills multiple prophecies from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 Isaiah writes about the suffering servant. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In other words, I I didn't turn away. I received it. Psalm 22 speaks of the righteous sufferer in verses 16 and through 18. For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Or Psalm 22, 6 and 7. But I am worn. I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. As you can imagine them walking by just shaking their head in utter disdain. Or Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 which Isaiah writes about the suffering servant saying he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors as he's crucified with criminals, transgressors on either side of him. And Jesus, listen, he endures all of this, both physical and psychological pain with the full force of all of his senses. They're not numbed in any capacity. We're told in verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That would have been like an ancient narcotic in order to dull the senses physically, but also psychologically, right? dull the perceived reality of what's taking place around you. That's how many people ended up with, perhaps with some shame in their lives, because the reality was dulled by something they took into their bodies, and Jesus yet just receives all of it, with the full force of all of His senses. He's mocked by all humanity. Now we look back at this text, and we read it, together this morning and we would rightly condemn the actions of the soldiers and rightly condemn the actions of the crowds and rightly condemn the actions of the religious leaders and rightly condemn the actions of the criminals who hung on both sides of Jesus. But let us not forget we are there as well. See, the mocking of Jesus did not stop that fateful Friday over 2,000 years ago. 
but it's carried on in every culture. And the reason it carries on in every culture is because it is carried on in every human heart. Every human heart. And listen, those, those mock, the mocking, the ridicule, the scorn and disdain for Jesus that is carried on in every human heart reveals us a couple of things I think two threads running through here with regards to these claims that are mocked. First of all, the mocking reveals our hatred of who he claimed to be. Listen, they're not mocking him for the Sermon on the Mount, right? Nobody is mocking him for the golden rule, right? Nobody mocks Jesus here at the cross because of his teaching on marriage or divorce, or on selflessness and sacrifice and service. No one mocks Jesus here because of His teaching. They mock Jesus here because of His absolute claims to divine identity and authority. And the reason all of humanity mocks that about God Himself and Jesus as the second person of the Godhead is because we hate the claims of divine authority because it forces us into an all-or-nothing situation. Okay? See, in the ancient world, there was no Facebook. You know that already, didn't you? You didn't need a commentator to tell you that, or me. But there was no Facebook, and so there were no like buttons. Okay? Right? Now, some of us mindlessly scroll through social media, and we see something, right, uh, that a friend posts, and we'll hit like. Right? Or we see a page that aligns with particular, uh, you know, convictions that we hold, and so we'll hit like. And we like all these things scrolling through pictures of people's vacations and graduations and, you know, baptisms and all these things. We like all these things. But Jesus doesn't have a social media page. Okay? And His claim to divine authority, listen, what it does is it forces us, again, into an all-or-nothing situation where we can't just like Jesus like we like a Facebook post or we like a like a Facebook page, but rather it forces us not into a Facebook like, but a face-to-the-ground love and loyalty with all of our adoration, all of our affection given to Him, submissive to His authority because of His identity. That's what His claims do. They push us to one side or the other. Okay? There is no, there is no Switzerland. Right? Ever neutral. Always kind of playing both sides. No, it's either all or nothing. And all of humanity has mocked the claims of Jesus since because of that very reality. But second of all, it also reveals the blindness to the weakness of his ways. That we're numb to the, his, to the reality of the way that he operates. Listen, the soldiers, the Sanhedrin, the commoners and the criminals, they believe that Jesus cannot be who he claimed to be because of his perceived impotence. In other words, they said, listen, if you were really God, then I couldn't do this to you. Boom. Right? Then I couldn't beat you with a rod over the head. Then I couldn't drive spikes through your hands and through your feet. Then I couldn't whip you and pull chunks of flesh from you. Then I, you wouldn't stand for me putting on a stage performance to mock your claims to identity. If you were God and you were all powerful, you would do something about the situation that you were in. And listen, you and I, when we experience and encounter difficulties in our life, 
we have a tendency to mock either the love of God or the power of God. Consider when natural disasters hit, right? What are the what, what are the headlines oftentimes, right? right? Is, is there a God? If there was a God, how could he allow this? If he was all loving, how could he allow this? If he was all powerful, why didn't he stop this? And oftentimes when personal disasters strike in our lives, the terminal diagnosis, the death of one, someone that we care for, right? Because we believe that we know better how our lives ought to go than God does, we will mock His love for us, or we will mock His power and His ability to act on our behalf. Because God couldn't be winning the victory through weakness. God couldn't be, God couldn't be up to something through this pain. Because we believe, at least as modern Western individuals, that life with God is always up and to the right. Always. So we, t- we mock His love. We mock His power. So we look back and, and shake our heads at what took place there that day, but we must also shake our heads at ourselves and our own hearts. Because we, like they, mock His claims. Now the question, maybe, maybe that you're asking, maybe you're not asking, but I'm going to ask it, right? Is what is going on here? What is going Jesus Bearing the shame and humiliation, listen, it does reveal our hatred of His claims and our numbness to His ways, but it also reveals what He is about. It shows us something about ourselves, but it also shows us something about who He is and what He's accomplishing through all of this. Because at the cross, Jesus sacrifices. Listen, He gives up. He throws away His reputation. He throws away His name. And in so doing, He bears our shame. So we mock His claims, but He bears for us and in our place all of our shame. That's what's going on here. As shame and scorn is heaped on Him from every corner of humanity. He is bearing the shame for everyone who would trust in Him. Let me show you. Crucifixion, listen, it's not a graceful death. It was a gruesome one. A gruesome one. And one of the things that made crucifixion such an inhumane method of execution, listen, was not just the excruciating physical pain, but the excruciating psychological torture that was experienced by the stripping away the one thing the victim had left. All they had left. Their name. Their legacy. Their reputation. See, it might be confusing, because in modern Western culture, what so many of us are aspiring to, the greatest aim of our lives, where we want our lives to end, is with a good retirement. (laughs) Can I get a witness? That's what most of us are aspiring to. We want a good, we want a great retirement, right? Jet setting around the world, members of vacation clubs, right? We want to be able to go different places and do different things. We, 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 just, we don't want to have any responsibility. We want to just be able to sit with our feet in the sand and do nothing. That is the highest aspiration of Western American culture. Ease of life, endless vacations, and that's what drives the decisions people make regarding how they're going to use their time and their energy and their resources what they're going to invest themselves in and give themselves to. But in ancient Eastern culture, it was different. Because in ancient Eastern culture, what everyone aspired to over the course of their lives was not a good retirement. 
but a good reputation, a name, a legacy that they would leave in their wake, and that's what dictated how they lived. That's what drove the decisions they made about what they were going to do, where they were going to invest, how they were going to leverage their time and their energy. That was the highest aspiration in Eastern culture. So, listen, to be stripped, naked, beaten, and hung on a cross for all the world to see, you know what it did? It would bankrupt your reputation. It would drain you of all the relational capital that you had compounded in this legacy that you were going to leave behind you. You were publicly humiliated in death before all the people of your town and anybody who happened to be in town on their way through. And again, we may not feel that this morning, right? Because not the highest pursuit of our culture. So just imagine for a moment, you turn 67 and a half, okay? Right, 67 and six months, right there, boom, right in the middle. Turn 67 and a half, and you've dreamed of retirement all of your life. And on the 29th day of the fifth month of your 67th year, the entire economy collapses, and everything that you have worked for over the course of your life, everything that you've invested, everything that you've saved, everything that you've put back is stripped away, and you are penniless, penniless in a moment. And you have nothing left to your name. How you feel in this moment right now is beginning to get close to the way they would have felt enduring the humiliation, the scorn, the shame, the reviling of crucifixion. As their legacy was no longer a noble one that would live on as the most precious commodity in the ancient world, but listen, it, their, their name would live on in dishonorable infamy. This is what Jesus is experiencing at the cross. And the shame that He bore on the cross that day, I want you to know, church, did not belong to Him. It wasn't His. Psalm chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, humanity from the time of the fall has looked at God and said, How can we free ourselves from the bonds that He has placed upon us, restricting our behavior so that we can be free from His authority. In fact, He says the great rulers of the ancient world plotted together in order to conceive of ways that they could burst the chains of God, the bond, the loving bonds of God in their life. And then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 4, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, regardless of what they do, my king still reigns. He's still set, he's fixed in position. And I, I mock them 
because they think that life would be better without my loving leadership and lordship in their lives. I hold them in derision. See, the shame that Jesus bore on account of sin, He did not bear on account of His sin, He bore on account of my sin. And He bore on account of your sin. Because it was the mocking and the shame that came from God upon us on account of our decision to run and rule our own lives. And what is taking place at the cross is Jesus taking our shame, taking our derision, throwing away His name, throwing away His reputation, going down in shame so that you and I would have a name that would endure forever. This is the best illustration I've ever heard of this. And I, I, I did not see this movie. I just heard it used as an illustration. So I just want to give you that caveat. Okay? Um, but it was a movie produced in 1938 called Angels with Dirty Faces. It starred James Cagney and Patrick O'Brien. And these two actors, they play two young kids who grew up in Hell's Kitchen in the slums of New York. And Jimmy Cagney's character grows up to be the gangster named Rocky Sullivan. He's like a celebrity on the street. He's one of those guys, right, he kissed the ring, you know what I'm saying? If somebody crosses him, disrespects him, right, they get taken care of, all right? He's that kind of guy. His celebrity status causes all the young kids in the slums to admire him, to want to grow up to be him. That was the aspiration of their life. Patrick O'Brien's character, however, Jerry Conley, grows up to be a priest, and he works with at-risk kids in the slums who are pursuing a life of crime. And one of the reasons they are pursuing that life is because they so admire Rocky. They so look up to him. They say, if that's what it looks like to be successful in the world, that's who we want to be. That's who we want to model and pattern our life after. Now, Father Jerry has a bunch of these kids who are living in the basement of his parish house. And he's trying to get them involved in programs that can help them. Right? get them on the straight path, but they would have none of it because of their respect for Rocky. Now, eventually Rocky is caught in a shootout with the police in a warehouse, right? Some random warehouse, whoever, who knows where it was, right? But in, in, this, in, in the warehouse, and he, Rocky ends up taking a few of the guys out, but he's wounded in the process. He's captured, right? He's tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by the electric chair. And the night before his execution, Rocky is in prison, and Jerry visits him. And Rocky says, listen, you've always been a friend from the time we were kids, and I appreciate you taking time to come see me before what, what takes place tomorrow. And Jerry says, listen, Rocky, I have a favor to ask of you. And Rocky says, a favor? Ask of me? I, I, I don't know what I can do for you. Right here I am in prison, on death row, about to face the chair tomorrow. What could I possibly do? But go ahead and ask. And this is what Jerry asks of him. He says, Rocky, what if I asked you tomorrow to be scared? Suppose at the last minute the guards drag you out of here screaming for mercy. Suppose you went to the chair, Yella. Rocky says, Jerry, Yella? Me? What's the matter with you, Jerry? Jerry says, listen, no, I want you to have courage. But I want you to have a different kind of courage, the kind that's born in heaven, not the swagger and the bravado that everyone has seen from you in the past, the kind of courage that only you, me, and God will ever know about. I want you to let the boys in my neighborhood down. You've been a hero to these kids and hundreds of others all across the city, and now you're going to be a glorified hero in death. And I want to prevent that, Rocky. You've got to despise, they've got to despise your memory. That's their only hope. They've got to be ashamed of you. 
And Rocky looks at Jerry and says, you're asking me to pull an act? To turn yellow so these kids will think I'm no good? You're asking me to throw away the one thing I've got left? You're asking me to crawl my belly is the last thing I do in life? Nothing doing. You're asking too much. You want to help those kids, Jerry? You're going to have to think of some other way. Listen, you see the reason Jerry is coming to Rocky and asking this is because he's saying, Rocky, it's them or you. It's them or you. If you go out in glory, they will go down into a life of shame. But if you're willing to go down into a life of, of shame, if you're willing to throw your whole life away and go out in a horrible humiliation and shame, they can be saved from that life. What will you do for them, Rocky? And Rocky says, it's my name. It's all I have left. The next morning at dawn, it's time for his execution. And the priest comes with the guards to the cell to get Rocky. And Rocky comes out with a snarl and a smile walking down the hall toward the death chamber. And when one of the guards insults him, he slugs the guard on the way to the chairs. to say, I'm going out the way that I came in. My head held high. But when he comes to the door of the death chamber, suddenly he begins to squeal like a child. He begins to cry out, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Don't, don't burn me, I don't want to die. He falls completely apart and becomes an utter coward. They grab him and they pull him into the chair and he's just crumbling there, screaming like a child until the minute they flip the switch. And when Jerry sees what's taking place, he looks to heaven as if to say, thank you, Lord. See, Rocky threw away his name so the boys in Jerry's neighborhood might have a shot of, at a life of honor rather than one of crime. But here, and here's the point. Listen, every illustration breaks down at some point, right? But here's the point. He gave his name up for them, which is exactly what Jesus does for us. The difference, Rocky had lived a life of shame and let go of his name and was put to death for his own sins. But Jesus, who had lived a life of honor, was willing to relinquish his name and go down in humiliation and go down in shame, go down as being derided and ridiculed and mocked as he was put to death, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. Jesus threw away his name. He threw away his reputation by bearing our shame. See, in the same way that it was either Rocky or those boys, Jesus knew it was either him or us. Either he could hold on to his name, hold on to his reputation, right, and come down from the cross. Could have. But in that moment, we would lose our name forever. Or he could lose his name in the moment. He could lose his reputation at that time to secure for all who would trust in him a name, as, the author, as John says in Revelation chapter 2, with a little white stone with a name written on it that nobody knows but themselves. To secure for us entrance into the very presence of God, a name that would always endure if he would throw away his name for a moment, we could have that forever. And yet we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that because he so lightly regarded his own name and reputation, this is what's beautiful about it, church. He was willing to cast it aside and die another shame, derision, humiliation. Because of that, he's received an eternal reward. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Is that, what it's, is that where he stops? Even, even death on a cross. The most humiliating, scornful death you could possibly die, having everything down to your name stripped away from you. Jesus submitted himself to that. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a moment, his name was stripped from him, and the reward he received was a name that's above every name to which every tongue would confess and every knee would bow. Through the bearing of our shame and the stripping of His name, Jesus clinched for Himself the highest name and for us a name that would last forever. And so you may be asking, what do we do with all this? Let me give you two things this morning. Two of the most powerful and practical things. See, Jesus objectively bore our shame and threw away His name for us, but how do we subjectively experience those benefits that He has given to us? Right? It begins with us trusting in Him. Not thinking that, right, not casting off His restraints, not casting off His bonds, but yielding to Him, receiving the gift of salvation that He's offered. And as we receive that gift of salvation, placing our trust in what He's done, Right? Sinless life, shameful death, exalted forever. Put our trust in what He's done. And listen, it allows us to send our shame away. To send our shame away. See, when Jesus was crucified, did you notice in the text where they crucified Him? Was He crucified in the temple? He wasn't crucified in the temple. Was He crucified in the city walls? No, he was not crucified in the city walls. Where did they lead him to be crucified? Outside the walls. Outside the walls. And you think, wow. Right, that's pretty amazing. Wasn't he? Listen, on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16, whenever the high priest came, when the high priest came, to present offerings for the sins of the people. He would bring not one lamb, but he would bring two. He would make an offering of a bull for himself and for his own household, for their own sins, and then he would take these two lambs. He would confess the sins of the people onto their heads, and one of the lambs, right, its throat was cut. It was slaughtered and slain. The blood from that lamb was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, turning aside God's just anger against our sin as it falls on a substitute. That was one lamb. But the other lamb, the high priest would confess the sins of the people onto the head of that lamb. And they would take that lamb and they would lead it outside the walls of the city into the wilderness. You had one lamb that was turning aside the wrath of God, the other lamb that was taking away the sins, taking away the guilt, taking away the shame of the people as he went outside the walls into the wilderness. And listen, church, 
both those lambs came to be one on this day. Because you had Jesus Christ, the very Lamb of God, that John the Baptist declares Him to be. The very Lamb of God whose blood was shed for us outside the walls. He carried our shame all the way to the cross and it bore it there at the cross. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 16, we're told that when the high priest confessed the sins of the people under the head of that lamb, they would do this, they would send it away. They would send it away. And it would take away, like the, you want the big theological terms, right? Propitiation, turning aside God's wrath, expiation, removing our guilt and our shame. Both of those things happened every day, every, every, the Day of Atonement every year, and both of those happened thing, things happened once fully and finally at the cross. So here's what that means. That if you're a Christian this morning, if you've trusted in Christ as your substitute, that means you can send your shame away. The shame that you bear on account of the things that were said to you and the shame that you bear on account of the things that were done to you, things that ought not have been said and things that ought not have been done, Jesus, listen, He has taken it away. You can send it away. And the shame that you bear for the things that maybe you have done with your body, the things that you have done with your money, the things that you have done, the things that you have said, you need not bear that any longer and let it be a corrosive influence in your life, eroding your very soul, but you can send it away. Because Jesus took it. So listen. You need not bear the shame of your sin or the sins that have been committed against you any longer. Send them away. Believe that Jesus has borne them for you. Remind yourself of that. So much of the Christian life, listen, some of you are going to think that I'm a little strange here, is learning to talk to yourself. You just don't answer yourself, okay? But learning to talk to yourself and preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding you that your shame has been dealt with. You need not let it any longer create holes in your soul. I don't know about you, but for me, it is good news. Second, and then we're done. See, there is a type of shame that you're able to send away, but there's a type of shame that you cannot send away as a faithful follower of Christ. And that is the shame that comes to us on account of our identification with Him. Right? Because we belong to Him. All throughout the Scripture we're told that you're gonna, we're going to bear insults on account of His name. Okay? That we're going to suffer scorn and ridicule on account of His name. Because of our association with Him, our identification with Him, there will be certain amounts of, of shame and scorn that are heaped upon us. We cannot send that shame away. We, we bear it gladly. In fact, that's what the apostles would say. That we gladly suffer reproach for His name. 
Not for our sins, but for His name. So what do you do with that shame? You send away the shame of your sin and the sins that have been committed against you, but you learn to despise the shame that you bear on account of His name. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Ryan read it for us earlier in our service as we, we read about the author encouraging us to run the race that is set before us, casting off the things that would hinder us, the sin that would entangle us. And he says, fix your gaze. Look at Jesus, he says in Hebrews 12, 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Listen, that word despise in Hebrews 12 too, literally means to think little or nothing of something or someone. And so, in other words, this is what Jesus is doing as He despises the shame. Right? Jesus endures the intense suffering of the cross and thinks little or nothing of that shame associated with the mockery, ridicule, nakedness, and beating. Jesus looks at the shame and says, Shame, you are nothing. You are temporary. You will not last. You will not endure forever. In fact, the degree of shame that I'm experiencing right now, this is what Jesus, I believe this is what Jesus is doing when He's despising the shame. He's looking at it and saying, the degree of shame that I'm experiencing right now will only serve to further deepen the degree of joy that I will have when this is all over. The joy that is set before me. What I've accomplished. You are little compared to the massive, all-encompassing, ever-enduring and ever-increasing joy in the presence of my Father. From where I have come alongside of the host and the host of brothers and sisters that I will now bring to you to be with me. So shame, you are nothing. You are nothing compared to the sweetness of love shared by my Father, through the person of the Holy Spirit, and the love that will forever be shared with those that I have brought to you by my sufferings. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. This is the joy set before Him. The family reunion in heaven with His Father. The love of the Holy Spirit permeating both of them. And those that, he's, those that He's won by the giving of His life. And listen, church, when that kind of shame comes on account of His name, in a, ever in, in a culture that's ever increasingly hostile to the gospel, when that shame comes, we in turn must learn to speak to our shame as well and despise it. Despise it on account of its degree, because the degree of shame that we will experience on account of Jesus' name is far less than the degree that He experienced. Its duration, it will not last forever for those who are in Christ, and it has been dealt with. Jesus, listen, He's dealt with all that shame. All of it. So there's some shame that you send away. Jesus bears it outside the walls and you need not have your soul fractured and eroded by it any longer. And there's some shame that you gladly receive on account of the name of Jesus and you despise it. You say, shame, you are small, you are temporary. 
And because of you today, then tomorrow, my joy will be deeper and longer and better. Listen, all of this is for those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, this is yours already. If you're not in Christ this morning, it does not belong to you. You may not lay claim on it. And the only way that you can, only way that you can, is to repent of your sin, of running and ruling your own life, and place your trust in Him. To know that He has borne your guilt, that He has borne your shame, that He is satisfied by His life perfectly the law of God and by His death perfectly the justice of God. It's been satisfied in Him. And there is nothing that you can add to, subtract from, multiply or divide it by. But it's all been done. It is finished. And if you're not in Christ this morning, I invite you to place your trust in Him and know what it is to be free from shame and to despise the shame that you might receive on account of His name. If that's you this morning, I'll be in the back of the room. I'd love to visit with you about that. Answer any questions you might have about that. Pray with you. I invite you to stop by on your way out. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then Brian and the banner are going to lead us as we sing and respond to what God has said. Let's pray. Father, today we come thanking you for the fact that we have one who through his reputation, your son, he threw his legacy, he threw his name away. And because of that, you rewarded him with a name that's above every name. As he secured for us a name. A name for which there is no reason to turn aside in shame. Father, even as we're reminded that the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected, that you have set as the chosen and precious cornerstone, and that for all who believe in him, they will not be put to shame. They will not stand before you one day and be turned away. Because you have sent their shame away upon the back of a lamb who was crucified outside the walls to take it away. For my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, help us to live in the freedom of that. Send it away. And then when shame comes on, on account of Jesus' name, that we would despise it, we would esteem it lightly and small compared to this passing worth and greatness of knowing you. And for those who are outside of Christ this morning, Father, I ask you be gracious to save, open blind eyes, soften hard hearts, illumine darkened minds, that the light of the knowledge of the glory of Yourself in Your Son 
and they would cross the line of faith and know freedom from shame. Because they too would have one who bored in their place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.